0: Ready for the interview, and if you get a cue live on a laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto. Doctor D, D, hit an intro. Hold up, wait. Gotta be social, network, global, home for the local. Yes. Gotta be social, network, global, boy, home for the local. Olga, how are you?
1: Hi, nice to speak to you. I'm doing well,
0: thank you. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. We talked a while ago off yeah. air, and uh, I learned some interesting stuff about you. <laughs>
1: like, about me?
0: Outside of your research, we talked about some stuff. Right. May not yeah. <laughs> we
1: did, but I heard you also learned some cool stuff about bees. So I'd love to I, hear. About
0: that. I, well, you know, it's just uh, my daughter has this like big fear of bees. And she's 10, but then I started explaining to her like the importance of bees. And, and so we were outside and we were watching kind of this bee like pollinate a flower and stuff. And then like the fear went away from her as she like understood a, a little one part of what a bee does, you know? And so we were right next to this bee and watching it on a beautiful sunny day. And, uh, and I said, I'm gonna be talking to a lady about uh, bees and she's like, oh, you have to tell me what she says. <laughs>
1: <Aww>. <laughs> Get her on, let her ask some questions. I know,
0: she's at school right now learning about stuff, you know, but um, your uh, area of research fascinates me. I think these are more important than we think they are, so give me some background into your motivation for getting into this version of research.
1: Sure, so I'm a Conservation biologist, um, and a PhD candidate right now. And I am studying um how bees interact with the climate and the way that we choose to use land and how all of that affects um how our pollinators are surviving and thriving or not around mm-hmm. us. So I got into this um similarly to the way that your daughter is like starting to get interested about the natural world. In my experience, the more closely you look at nature the more you will discover and the more questions you'll have and i'm never left disappointed when i just stop and look around at like my back garden or just the plants along the street when i'm walking um it's just like reminds you that everything is connected around you everything is working you know in its own way and there's just so much more to learn and it's not scary like your daughter noticed as well
0: that's scary it's not <laughs> scary so let's take this from let's let's take it from a very basic level and then get really specific. So the importance of bees in the world, start there. What's kind of the basic level information we should know.
1: All right. Bees um, are one of our biggest pollinators of all the flowering plants around the world. Um, So this includes the wildflowers that you see anywhere, but this also includes our fruit and vegetables. Um, So without bees, very little fruit and veg. Without bees, forget cotton that's used to make the denim that we wear, right? Um, Bees are super important pollinators of those things. Um, Even dairy cows eat plants pollinated by bees. So on a basic level, um, over 80% of like plants around the world are pollinated by these bees and they're super important to us.
0: Wow, that's quite a bit of things that uh, I don't think most people know that (laughs) about it. What is their kind of their culture? Let's talk about bee culture. How (laughs) do bees behave in their culture? What's kind of their whole societal aspects of bees?
1: That's a really good question because it is, like you said, a society. There's a Mm -hmm. huge organizational structure and hierarchy. Um, I focus on bumblebees, so I'll tell you about that how how their life goes Um, bumblebees the colony is started by a single queen bee that was uh, already had her eggs fertilized the fall before she's been sleeping all winter in like underground or in some kind of sheltered place she's been hibernating Um, in the spring this one queen bee wakes up and she's hungry she immediately needs to find some flowers some pollen some nectar to feed herself and also to feed her fertilized eggs that are, you know, she has to lay somewhere and then feed all by herself. How
0: long is this hibernation, by the way? I didn't know that this happened.
1: Yeah, for for bumblebees, um, the queen bee hibernates the whole winter. So maybe somewhere in September, October, when, when you can imagine all the flowering plants dying off, she's got no more food to eat. And so it's time for her to, to go hibernate. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Wow. I just, hibernation, I'm not sure that we see hibernation as like a bumblebee thing. We think about like bears and things like you know, kind of like this slumber, this hibernation. So they go underground, like, okay, underground, like, I mean, it sounds dumb, like where? Like underground, like what's their area? That's,
1: That's actually a great question because if we knew that we would know a lot about more, a lot more about bee conservation. Um, It's super hard to find because it's just a single bee, right? And she'll find find like any cavity she can. Um, If there's an abandoned nest from a rodent, she might go in there or under a pile of like logs or leaves in the forest or just in a small cavity underground, anywhere she can find. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's that's crazy, actually. I had no clue. So they come out of hibernation, take me through that process.
1: All right, so the queen bee's out, her metabolism is up, she's hungry, she's flying around. She needs to find some flowers to, to get her food. And then she needs to find like a really nice spot to lay her eggs. So um, this could also be like a rodent's nest. Um, if you watch, I forget which nature documentary is, but the queen bee can literally fight like a mouse for her nest space. Like so this queen is determined. Mm. She, she wants somewhere to lay her eggs that's safe and secluded. Um, So she lays those first round of eggs. Those are all going to be girls. Those are all female eggs. Hmm. Um, So in general, the bumblebees, I will just tell you now, the girls do all the work. (laughs) So all the fertilized eggs are going to be girls. And they're the ones who are caring for the queen, um, cleaning up the the egg cells and taking care of the brood, going out to forage, doing the pollination that we see. So anytime you see a, bee po- a bumblebee pollinating, that's gonna be a girl. Um, <laughs> so they do that all throughout the summer. The queen bee kind of just lays back um, after she's raised that initial brood, she stays in the nest. The girls go out and collect pollen, bring it back, clean up the nest. They feed her like her own special cocktail of pollen and nectar called, um, it's called royal jelly. i forgot to mention as well the queen's saliva is super important to taking care of the nest at the beginning as well um so it's so it's this special mix of like all these things that are very yummy to bumblebees um like go on and the boys only come in later towards the end of the summer um they the queen then gives birth to unfertilized eggs which are the males and their only job is to go out to this landing platform where the drones all gather and to find virgin queens and uh, inseminate their, uh, their eggs for, for the next year.
0: That's wow, that's it? it? Yeah. And then they die, right? Yeah, I was gonna say. Man, the male life of a bee, bumblebee, is not much happening
1: there. <laughs> not much happening. <laughs>
0: so the society of bees is, like the functioning society of bees is primarily female Then on a regular basis
1: that's it yeah yeah it's primarily female
0: wow I had no clue I thought there was like male and female bees operating it's like a female society
1: it really is yeah honeybees are a little bit different in Uh um, their or a distribution of responsibilities I think in honeybees there's some that uh, clean the nest some that forage the distribution is a bit more distinct but for bumblebees they all end up going through the process of doing all of these stages through their lives and i think this is just controlled as far as i'm aware by the chemical signaling of the queen mm. and the other bees
0: interesting so among this uh, female society what's is there a structure or kind of like a system of jobs or uh, like the behavior
1: that's the thing in the jobs are sort of, they seem to be um, communicated from the queen to the colony, like what job needs to be done seems to just be communicated through chemical signals. Mm. So right now we need to go forage, right now you need to prepare all the egg cells for eggs to be laid inside them. Um, right now you need to take care of the larvae, all of that is sort of communicated, I think just through pheromones.
0: Hmm, very interesting. And now there is there a so Beyond the hibernation, is there like a bumblebee hive, like, and how was that constructed?
1: Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah, so the hive can um, be in a lot of places that already exist, like um, like little burrows, little cavities that are found. Um, there are some bumblebees that like nest in trees, but most of them nest underground or right on the surface. Um, you've probably seen like paper wasp nests they're very mm-hmm. conspicuous, hanging off of trees. Bumblebees typically won't do it that that obviously it won't be like that that big like hanging structure constructed they'll just use um, an existing cavity somewhere
0: huh and what's the so the queen what's the queen's lifespan?
1: It's just a year they all live just a year so the queen, hmm. In the spring she's come out she's laid her fertilized eggs she's taken the colony successfully through the whole summer by the end of the summer she'll die or just maybe you know wander off and disappear at some points um and the virgin queens that were just born that summer they're the ones that now um, their eggs get fertilized and they will go to sleep and wake up the next spring so all of them just hmm. live one season
0: wow I have a deep question. I feel like this is a deeper question.
1: Uh, All right, let's hear it.
0: (laughs) Okay. How do you think about that life cycle and kind of the almost mechanized fashion of it? Like every the bees feel like, I feel like they know, bumblebees seem like they know this is their amount of time versus how we look at our lifespan and always trying to extend it beyond what it may be.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think... That is. So how much to the degree to which they have like their consciousness, I don't know, I wish I could ask, but um, one thing I do know is small insects like bumblebees, they're sometimes called bio indicators which means that if something's wrong with the bees, if they're disappearing, that's a good sign to us that something in the environment is changing, maybe deteriorating, and then we have to start taking a closer look at the environmental mm-hmm. conditions in which they live. So they're indicators. It's because they're so sensitive to the environment, first of all, because they forage directly on the primary producers, the plants, right? So if, if anything goes wrong with the plants, they're the first to notice. They're really small, so they're sensitive to environmental changes. Whereas I guess humans, um, you know, we're not that sensitive to the environment. We've sort of built our own houses. Clearly. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: like, I mean, we are, as a, as, as a species, we're, we're very fragile, but individually, I guess we can, you know, sort of ignore nature sometimes probably for the worse, um, yeah. we're not as in tune with, with the environment around us, but bumblebees are one of the first to notice if something's going wrong, so we really need to pay attention to what's, what's going on with the insects.
0: I feel like animals in general have a pretty good sense of nature, and I mean, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like they're trying to like extend their, their lifespan, like they're just existing, and they're, they're doing these functions. And I don't, I mean, maybe there's a certain level of consciousness that they're worried about dying. I don't know. But like, I think it makes humans different is like, we almost like try to, we try to buck society, like nature, Or like, well, we're almost like we're better than it. Like, we don't exist in it. We're like, well, we shouldn't be dying. Like, you know, why is that happening? You know, like, there's like animals don't sense that. Or maybe they do, but they just, they just allow the cycle to happen, you know?
1: Yeah. They they do. I mean, I guess um, there's the evolution that'll happen, but yeah. not within the individual lifespan of of a of an insect or any animal. Um, they just have their needs. They they need their shelter. They need their food. Um, they need environmental conditions that are suitable to them. And that's that's all they know. They you know yeah. can't go out and buy a fur coat or install a fan for the summer if it gets too hot. They're really at the mercy of of what's out there already.
0: Yeah, it's true. So this is a good bridge into environmentalism and like climate change. So uh, obviously working in this population, you're making the link between this. Why, first question is, why is this something is not a widely held thing about how our environment, our footprint on the environment and the effect it has on things as small as
1: bumblebees i think um why are not you know why aren't we talking about it Is like that- i
0: don't know many people talking having this conversation today seriously <laughs> you know
1: wow that's uh yeah we should be talking about it more um because there's absolutely an urgency to talk about this so in the past 10 years nine of those have been some of the hottest summers on record um the planet is going through an unprecedented species loss we've lost a quarter of all the bees that we've ever documented um so imagine how many more species might be lost that we've just never heard of Mm -hmm. Um, the extinction rates are going up uh, much faster than they have been at any other documented time um and for us that also leads to um the climate changes I mean are leading to natural disasters like we've everybody's heard in the news there's floods there's wildfires there's unseasonable temperatures happening everywhere um which is leading to you know like like issues for us today this this is the the loss of species is just cascading into um I mean well it's, <laughs> the loss of species is, you know, something that you can sort of put out of your mind, but these Mm -hmm. natural disasters, you can't ignore that. Um, And human mortality is going to increase as these environmental things start to, to show up more and more in our own lives.
0: Why don't, you know, I think about like, sometimes I've had a wildlife biologist on here, and I think we talked about the pros and cons of zoos and stuff, and whether people get to actually see an elephant up close, or they see a lion, whatever, and they, They have, usually it affects people much closer when they see the animal or the species that is being harmed. People see bumblebees a lot. It's like, so why don't we care as much about bumblebees as we do about other species?
1: I would argue that we, if we paid attention to them for real, we would. And we do care more about bumblebees than about any other type of wild bee. There's so many species of wild bee out there And part of the reason why I'm studying bumblebees specifically is just because people notice them, because they're big and fuzzy and cute, you know, they're sort of more, they've got a bit more charisma than um, (laughs) other wild bees that are just the size of like a tiny fruit fly at times, you know, and just harder to catch and just, you know, not as cute. Um, So I would I would argue that, like, people are paying attention to bumblebees more than others. But there's definitely things we can do to make people pay attention to it more. Um, What your daughter is doing, just going out and and looking at insects in the natural world is one of the best things we can do. I think a lot of people are leaving these big environmental problems up to like policy makers and Mm -hmm. big organizations and sort of, you know, yeah, they they do have a huge role to play um, in changing, you know, regulations and policies that can govern our whole world and sort of affect <laughs> our, uh, our fate. But, you know, you and I can do so much um, just at home. Teachers, parents, all of us can, there's so much that we can do to, to play our part to help.
0: But it's funny, I feel like if I, like I'm gonna tell people about this conversation, right? I'm gonna spread it out there online. I'm gonna talk to people in person. And, I, and some people I know, they're not gonna take it that serious. They're not gonna be like, okay, bumblebees are gone. Okay, you know, like, why are people why won't people take stuff like that seriously.
1: That's, uh, I mean, that's a huge question. Um, Because they don't care. Like, if someone had a pet bumblebee, and it died, they would probably care. Yeah, the the apathy, I think. Um, It goes back to what you asked me earlier, not feeling connected with the natural world as much you just, we are distracted by other things. Um, If, and and kids are born with this natural sense of wonder and excitement the natural world, that's there right away. If we can just, you know, as educators and parents remind students, like draw their attention back to that, remind them that even in cities, there's just so much like diversity of life um and you know every time you walk by a flower check out to see what's on it or check out what that flower is called um you know they'll grow up with that sense of like okay i this is part of my environment this is important to me and whatever job they go into they might keep that in mind you know if you're an insurance broker you'll do insurance based on you know um environmental catastrophes if you're a scientist you can study conservation um it's just up to us to like get that curiosity back and I really yeah. think I start with with the younger generations
0: so let's talk about you mentioned a few of these things
1: already but like
0: I think it's good for people to take what I want this to be something is people listen to this go wow I like first of all I didn't know anything about bumblebees too like it's a detriment if these animals are not these insects are not around what is what are the consequences of not having bumblebees and our society, like, and how would people feel that?
1: Right. All right. So uh, if you like denim, if you like wearing jeans or having cotton things, forget it. Um, We're not gonna have that without pollinators. Um, Some plants are wind pollinated, but most of them need pollinators like bees. Mm -hmm. So forget that. Dairy, you can forget having any dairy. Um, The majority- Well, because what cows eat is plants that are pollinated by bees. There's no way around that. Um, Yeah, I've even heard that some weeds, um, like the invasive garlic mustard, if it grows on pastures that cows graze on, it changes the taste of the milk, the milk Mm. becomes sort of more garlicky. So basically, we don't (laughs) want to mess with that. Let's, Let's protect the natural flowers um and then we'll we'll just have the milk that we're used to yeah and i mean that's to say nothing of like uh, of all the fruit and veg crops that we have and some fruit and vegetable crops are um much more efficiently pollinated specifically by bumblebees because they have this cool behavior where they can buzz it's called buzz pollination they vibrate their bodies to kind of weasel into those flowers of (laughs) berries um for example and and get in there and like pollinate that plant better than anything else so, I mean, imagine not having the fruit and vegetables we have and the other food that we have and the clothing that we have. And just, I mean, from a completely, even if you're entirely, you know, heartless and un, unbothered by these things, imagine how economically, like how expensive it's gonna be to mechanically pollinate these things. You know, mm. the cost of, um of any of nature around us, like the air filtration that trees do for us, that the, there's a massive economic, like tangible cost that you can, uh, tangible benefit, you know, like it would cost so much for us to like filter the air the way that trees do. And similarly, it would cost so much for us to try to pollinate flowers, reproduce them um, in the way that bees already naturally do.
0: Is there efforts to do that? The people, are people, scientists trying to do that?
1: In some places, it's kind of already uh, inevitable. People have to literally uh, walk around with a little paintbrush through their apple orchard and move the pollen between plants. Oh my God. If you can imagine, I mean, wildly inefficient compared to letting insects just do their thing. Yeah.
0: Wow. Um, I did not know that. That's intense. Like,
1: We don't wanna live in a future with drone bees either. I mean, that's just-
0: Drone bees? What's that?
1: I think, I mean, don't quote me on this but I've seen some research into how to make little drone versions of the insects that we have. But I mean, isn't that depressing?
0: I feel like that's really depressing. Like you're just gonna have these fake bees just rolling around and, and just doing some weird version of pollination, like.
1: I think so too. What
0: is that? Like,
1: like, no, what do you have, what are you going to have to do? Like battery charge them? I know.
0: How does that work? (laughs)
1: Like, Don't you feel we
0: do that though? Like humans do that. Like instead of actually solving a problem, we just like, well, let's just like do a dip. Let's make up something to account. You know what I mean? Instead of like helping bumblebees we go, we just replace them, you know, (laughs) like, we'll make them like nano bees or something,
1: you know, it's like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Definitely, uh, in the long term, it is much more economical to just preserve our natural habitat. But that's one of the issues with it is, is sometimes in the short term, these biodiversity conservation programs don't always seem to be you know, where, where people think the money needs to be going right now. So yeah, they don't always get the support that they need.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, talk about that a little bit about emphasis on this area of conservation. Like, is there levels of importance that you've seen for this? Like, oh, okay, these mammals or these insects, like, hey, bumblebees down here, you know, whatever mammals up here.
1: Um, yeah, I think if you look at, for example, the World Wildlife Fund, you'll see the super charismatic uh, mammals right on the front page of their website yeah uh it's but it's like you said before it's much easier to convince people to protect things that are really cute um yeah and there's so many insects and animals that we just don't know that much about and part of the reason is their study isn't funded because they're not adorable
0: of course
1: Um, yeah if you look at the IUCN reports in the States. Um, they will report on a majority of species what their what their status is if they're extinct or vulnerable to extinction or of least concern. Um, and scientists will routinely study more things. like try to get more information about species that they think might be endangered so that they can submit their profiles to this report so that we can have it documented that these species were documented to be at risk, you know, in this year. Hmm. Um, But, for example, for bumblebees, it can be a problem even putting them on lists like that because we don't know some things about them that we need to know to be able to list them. For example, we don't know where they overwinter, so we can't write um, conclusively that their overwintering habitat is, you know, being endangered or being lost um, due to, like, land use changes.
0: Right. See, that was, like, my original thing was, like, well, where does this happen? (laughs) Like, first of all. Who knows this is happening and where does it happen, you know?
1: Definitely, we need more young uh, researchers out there uh, looking for all this stuff and actually it, it doesn't have to just be me um, looking at all this stuff and doing a graduate degree. It, anybody can do this, can look out into the natural world and actually community science or citizen science as it used to be called, where anybody can just go document what's happening in the world around them and report it on like Public apps that is actually such a massive source of information for scientists. Um, for example, iNaturalist is this huge app where you can take a picture of any natural thing you see in the wild, any single like weird insect that you find or yeah. flower, um, or if you see a turtle and you want to know what is that turtle called, you upload it and it tags the latitude and longitude of where you found it it says when you found it and now anybody in the world can go see oh, okay in this place there's been you know this this species has been documented and if you can imagine that if everyone just on their daily lives on their daily walks um like me on my daily lockdown walks i'll do this often just take a picture of something i think is cool or i wanted something i want to know more about put it up on the app And then to scientists, this amalgamates into an enormous body of data where we now know, okay, the range of this species is, you know, within these bounds and we know that we know it's gotten all the way to this corner of North America because someone's seen it over there and they have photo proof of it. Um, So anybody can download these apps and and help out and learn a bit more about their natural world too.
0: That's pretty, naturalist. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to tell my daughter about that and my wife. They're huge outside nature. Oh, yeah. I mean, like so sensitive to animals of all tininess, huge. <laughs> and uh, it's, um, it's really amazing. What role do you think? Well, let me rephrase this. I talk to a lot of scientists on my show these days. I just think scientists need to get out and do more stuff like this, like what we're doing. Because I think in the past, like I grew up in the 80s, the 90s, I was in college in the 90s. And your typical scientist kind of, you know, one, this wasn't around. But I think sometimes it's be easy for scientists to just stay in the laboratory or in the field and you're publishing work. But that work does not get to pe- everyday people enough for them to care about it and to want to do something. And how science, science is presented to people, I think, is particularly important. So how do you view your role in that?
1: I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's that disconnect between everybody and the science that we're doing allegedly just, you know, uh, for everybody, but people don't see the link. Um, I think my role is definitely to be able to convey that research in a way that people feel like this is research that's done for them, that they can contribute to, that they can benefit from in their natural world. and. Um, I mean, in their daily lives, and hopefully, that increases their trust and curiosity for for science. Um, My role personally during my degree um, has been to try to do science outreach, for example, to schools. I do a lot of things with, um, I love going to classrooms with Let's Talk Science, Skype a Scientist, Letters to a Pre-Scientist, massive shout out to those programs. They're all non-profits, grassroots programs um that just let people like me talk to uh, like classrooms all over the world um and let them know this is what I do and I'm a normal person too yeah I
0: think
1: that, that's a big thing I like I'm
0: big time
1: like, Yeah, <laughs> yes I have I have the same hobbies as as these <laughs> kids do and um but I also just like to do research and I don't have to be I never wear a lab coat I'll be honest no
0: never. <laughs> <laughs> I think the look of scientists to me is changing and I think we, we've had this predetermined look of what a scientist looked like primarily in the past it was a guy always a guy which is not good and it was always some person this guy in like a pocket protector this like old school smoking jacket looking thing on teaching and just kind of like not in touch with like socially awkward not in touch with how people live normally hold up in a and a laboratory, I think that actually hurts sciences. It hurts science because you're dealing with just academia and the pursuit of tenure and the pursuit of pumping out research. Well, what's the point of having this research if nobody, if most people in the world don't even look at it, except your colleagues? I think it's a huge flaw of science, but I think it's changing, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. People feel like scientists are out of touch. And so when research comes out, they're reluctant to, to believe it, you know, which is the saddest part because yeah. extremely rigorous research process and to to have it such a minimal impact sometimes, um, that definitely needs to change. Yeah, uh, it's, and you mentioned that it's normally like guys, right? That's not that good. The yeah, I it's hard to stay apathetic to that when you're in the lab, when you're in research, and you see that attitude of students around me or younger students, you know, considering whether they should pursue graduate pursue graduate studies, um, and they just don't feel represented yeah. by their faculty, by the speakers that come to our seminars. They don't feel like they belong, and that's that's a massive, massive roadblock to. Um, to research and at all because if people leave, their ideas go with them, and yeah, you get to hear what they have to say. So um, definitely, I think it's my role to sort of look back and help out other students coming up who who want to do this and to make them feel belonged and like they should have respect um, and inclusion without request in in their laboratories, um, which is much easier said than done.
0: Yeah, what well, I find interesting, I I tend to like make these comparisons analogies of things and we talked about like you know the cuddly looking animals like dogs are amazing because they've ingratiated themselves in society and scientifically we know this just the look of a dog the puppy dog eyes that makes people want to embrace dogs and make it a a large thing that people are like care more about than children sometimes you know and because dogs feel almost relatable to the human experience and i think that's the same thing as scientists is like, there has to be a relatability, right? If a a scientist is only into science, that's their only work. All you scientists out there are like, you have to be relatable to people, like everyday people. Like you have to show that there's more to you than just research. And there's things that you're like, you just need to be like a regular person. Do you go out to eat? Do you dine? Do you like to go travel? Like what is, you know, like the whole person, I think sometimes... In any work we do, I'm in the fitness business. I never like when my colleagues are only in the fitness. Like, so okay, all you care about is your the aesthetic and the physical stuff. Like what what about other stuff? What's about your spirituality? What about your environment? Do you care about the environment? Like, and I think for scientists, like we need to see the whole scientist, not the just the science that you publish. Like, who are you actually? You know?
1: Absolutely, yeah, I'd 100% agree with that. Um, it's hard because there's no um, direct, sometimes that's not rewarded within the science community, I feel like, you know, you do it because you personally care, um, but, you know, it's not the same as putting a paper down on your resume, um, but I totally yeah. agree. We, we need to do a better job of including everybody in the field, everybody belongs here, everybody can do their part, and we really are just, just people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So I feel like a lot of professions are like this. It's, it's a messaging and image issue. It's like you got tied down into this monoculture male dominated deal. And you didn't let you didn't have you don't have diversity within the whole deal. And the presentation of science, often in school was extremely boring. It's like, and it's or it's science for the purpose of passing the test. It's The same thing with math. Math is boring. You know why? Because the way it's presented is extremely boring. It does. It's not fun. It, the, the, it's, most of the stuff you're into is all about how it was presented to you. I'm presenting bees as this amazing thing to my daughter. We're watching it. We're taking pictures of a bee pollinating a flower. That presentation is going to change how she sees bees for it. All about the presentation. Things, you know?
1: Absolutely. I, I've been lucky to to have a few science teachers that have definitely just inspired me massively. So I can't say I always thought it was boring in school. I thought it was pretty, pretty cool. But that's um,
0: probably rare what you experienced. Yeah, you know? Like
1: def- definitely. You you need to feel connected to it. You need to have someone be passionate about it to make you want to do it. You're totally right. We yeah. need a new you need a marketing revamp. Um, Completely. I think that'll come when more people from more backgrounds are able to feel welcome in science, that will come.
0: Most definitely. I just had a couple of uh, ladies on, they do a podcast science with millennials. It's really cool. And uh, they just started out and they, you know, they did radiation, they did fire and what's cool about them. They both have purple hair. And I said, Mm -hmm. that's good. I said, you have to be yourself. Don't be what society thinks you should be or, science is telling you you need to be this buttoned up person i was like you need to flex your artistic ability that doesn't take away from your intelligence about the subject and if somebody thinks they do that's about them not about you for that yeah
1: yeah absolutely yeah i listened to that episode as well i thought that was so cool that she was also like yeah i don't i don't wear lab coats i'm not like this old guy no myself.
0: I got to break that stuff. I really think, I'm not saying it's like the worst thing or anything, but it's like, it's representative of an era that was fine. It has to move on. We have to progress. I want my scientists to look very different. I want them to be like the version they want to be. I'm sure there's plenty of scientists back in the day who wanted to like, have like a Mohawk or something, but they just thought, well, I'm going to, I'm not going to get to this level because they're going to see me this way. I think that's wrong. You should be able to present. That doesn't make you unintelligent. It just means you like a mohawk. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> like, yeah. Absolutely. Right. I yeah. mean, you like playing Dungeons and Dragons. I don't care. Like, can you do the work? Can you do the work? You know, Absolutely. like,
1: yeah, I do. I also play music. I teach yeah. music. I love snowboarding. I Amazing know things that everybody likes to do.
0: Of course, you're you're not just like this one trick pony, you know what I mean? It's like, but what you're doing is really important. Um, But, you know, I don't know. I just like talking to scientists about this stuff. I'm like, ah, you got a messaging problem, man. You got an image problem, like, but it's not just, it's, but the more Olga's out there, the more Rachel and Cody's out there, the better it is for scientists, the better it is. So I want to promote people like you. That's what I want
1: to do. You know. Yeah, that'd be great. It's, it's definitely a challenge sometimes to get everybody on the same level, get everybody that same, you know, um, make everyone feel welcome enough that they, you know, first of all, get to the graduate level. Um, mm-hmm. Because there's a lot more women, for example, in undergraduate than there are at the graduate level. And then
0: mm-hmm.
1: way, way more at the graduate level than they are in faculty. So, yeah. it's, Definitely a challenge to keep retain talent from all backgrounds, let alone make them feel that they can express their own uniqueness too. Yeah,
0: I think you're in a good time over with all um, this. And I I just put out like a solo cast as well, and it's called "The Future is Feminine," mm-hmm. and I actually really believe that. I really believe it. Not in some way of like, oh, this. I think it's a wonderful thing, feminine energy. I think the future, and we know that through research, whenever we empower and lift up femininity for women, society gets better. It gets dramatically better. And we lift up people of different uh, ethnicities and we give them opportunities, it actually creates less violence, more prosperity for the, for the planet. We know this information. We should be re- raising up women and people of color constantly.
1: I mean, anybody who just wants to look at the facts as like scientists who who want to see the, the facts and the numbers behind um, EDI initiatives in institutions just need to look at at the research outcomes of more diverse labs, they really do produce higher quality research, it really is a benefit to the bottom line to to include as many perspectives as you can different backgrounds. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it really is important. Um, right now. I'm running this equity committee in my department, um, so we started about a year ago um, I'm the chair and founder and i'm hoping to, to pass it off to another student and one of the biggest things I learned is just. People want to talk about this young people want to talk about this, they just feel alone in this sometimes and you just need to start the conversation and people will come out there they'll reach out to you. They'll they won't feel as alone anymore, we just need to keep talking about it.
0: Well, I'm definitely interested in, in talking about it and I'm working on some stuff that I think is going to elevate uh, right. this the kind of the feminine energy because I, mean, I want to be a part of it. I want to be a positive cont- contributor to it because I don't look at that energy being uh, primarily a, like a woman-based thing. I think feminine energy can, can consist in men as well. Than any gender, is just how we are presenting that energy. We have presented it poorly in men forever to basically not exhibit those that energy, which is so wrong. And so I want to change that.
1: Well, think about the the qualities that we associate with leadership. Um, these are not my ideas. I've heard these from numerous mm-hmm. like TED talks and articles, but one of the prevalent ideas um, for why women are sometimes excluded from like top um c-level roles is that you know the qualities we associate with leadership are always often the qualities that we encourage in young boys Mm -hmm. and not young women and the language therefore that we put into job ads is seems to be more masculine Mm -hmm. you can even you can even quantify like certain verbs certain um words terms that you use to describe the job as feminine or masculine. And yep. studies show that women are just discouraged from applying when these words just don't feel like anything anyone's ever said to them before. No one's ever said that they're a strong leader, that they're, that they're confident or assertive maybe. And yep. so they disqualify themselves and they get disqualified.
0: Think about if you saw a job ad that said, we're looking for a caring, nurturing, humble, strong, what, what whatever, you know, you start, that sounds to me more universally human than it sounds either one way or the other it sounds more it sounds like delightful (laughs) you know like we're looking for somebody who's strong but sensitive who's caring and has humility versus you know
1: yeah but right now we associate that vulnerability with a weakness and right
0: we got to flip that yeah we're gonna flip it we're gonna flip it
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a tough question. Like what you can do in in your own business to to change that to not perpetuate the negative stereotypes that that you might unbiased uh, um unconsciously be biased yeah. for. Yeah, there's there's a lot to to look into that, but it's definitely important.
0: Most definitely, Olga. I knew this was going to be good,
1: and it definitely
0: was. It was amazing. Thank you so much for your time.
1: So nice to speak to you. Um, yeah.
0: Definitely get that app and let me know how many uh, species you find. I yeah. naturalist you for say, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we will definitely be in touch.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks, thank Olga. You. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.